And turn with me, if you would, to the book of Job. I mean, we had all the songs of praise and, and, and glory and, and awesomeness, and now I tell you what, turn to the book of Job. But you know what? They're all songs that Job talked about. I mean, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal book of the Bible. We're only going to spend a couple minutes on it. Anyways, <laughs> isn't that an awful statement? What a phenomenal book of the Bible. We're, we're not going to spend much time on it. Anyways, and so we are, we are in the... There we go. And we have been looking since the beginning of the year on focusing on the Christ, looking at, at Jesus Christ, looking on um, the shadow, specifically right now, this section of it, the shadow of Christ. And, and the transition that we made was talking about how, how God didn't leave this totally as a mystery. There is the mystery of, of grace, the mystery of salvation that was going to come, but that God had been given indicators. It's kind of like that mystery novel. You know, that there are indicators coming throughout that book of how the end's going to be. But as you kind of read it, you, there are certain things you see, but you kind of think about, you know, well, maybe that's, that's there, but maybe it's not. And then all of a sudden, in the last chapter, you see how everything kind of what? It all comes together. It ties together. And that's, that's the same thing with Jesus Christ. It's a, a neat thing when you consider that um, after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and He was... He was um, he came back while two of the disciples were, were traveling from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. Do you remember the story in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus story? And, and all of a sudden, Jesus kind of appears with them on the road and, and as they're walking together. And, and Jesus said, hey, what's going on? Why are you guys so sad? Why, why is your countenance down like that? And, and they said, are you like the only stranger in town? I mean, do you not know what's going on? Do you not know Jesus who we thought was the Messiah and what they have done to him? And and Jesus began to open up the Word of God and began to, to reveal Himself to them through God's Word. And so we have been looking at that as well over these last couple of weeks. And two weeks ago, we, we went from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and saw how Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation and the Lord of the Shabbat, the Lord of Sabbath. And yesterday morning in the men's breakfast, we talked about that a little bit more as application to men and how God created us to be productive and to be workers, but yet God desires us to, to rest and to, to take care of ourselves as well. And so um, he is the Lord of the Shabbat and Lord of, of creation. Last week, we went from Genesis 3 and we saw Jesus being the seed of a woman. And we we saw that in chapter 1 and 2 that he is, he, is, he is God. He is God. That's why it's Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh of the Sabbath and, and Yahweh of creation, that he is God who came incarnate. But we're told in chapter 3 as part of the curse to the woman because of sin that there would be this enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent who we know is Satan. And so that there would be this spiritual war that was going to go on between the two of them but that Christ was going to come then to be the seed of a woman, which we saw in Galatians chapter 4 as well, that in the fullness of time, that Christ came born of a woman, born under the, the law. And so we see then the humanity of Christ, which again is, is so exciting for us, and we, we brought out yesterday morning with the men from Hebrews chapter 4, that we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched, but rather we have a high priest who was tempted in every way such as we are, yet he was without sin. And so therefore he can be sympathetic. He can, 
Uh, and I talked about that with the guys yesterday, the word sympathetic, the Greek word for it. You guys remember what's the Greek word for sympathetic? Sympatheo. That's right, it's sympathetic. And so, and it, but it means to have passion with, to have the suffering with, to be able to, to feel the suffering with somebody else. And so Christ has that with me because he lived the life that I live. And so there is no temptation, no struggles that I undergo that he can't understand. And so we saw then as well in that, this, this battle that, that was going to go on, this spiritual war where, where the, the serpent, the seed of the serpent, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head or bruise the head of the, the seed of the serpent. And so we saw our suffering Messiah, us, our, the suffering Christ, but we also then saw the victorious or conquering Messiah as well, and that Jesus Christ has the victory. You walk in that victory today if you have confidence in it, if, you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you're living in that confidence, that, that, that victory is there over death and over sin. Today, in the book of Job, we want to see Christ as our Redeemer, the Redeemer that's there. But as we have in each of these passages as we've gone through it, we want to look at the, the passage practically first. Before we look at the prophetic application as Christ, of Christ, we want to look at the passage first. What is the passage talking about in context? Well, clearly, when, we, when I mention the book of Job, you know, we're, we're worshiping God, and I mention the book of Job, everybody thinks of the afflictions of Job. I mean, if there's one guy in the Bible that everybody understands was a guy who underwent torment, it was Job. It was Job. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Job, we want to read a little bit of this real quick, just so we, and I didn't feel good about having this being our Bible reading today. Um, so, but in beginning of chapter 1, I want to read sections of this down into chapter 2, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss this. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was a blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day, that, and would send and invite his three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of the feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and that he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and forth, to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. Now, there was a day 
when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. Yahweh has given, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And in all of this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came also among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan said to Yahweh, From going to, to and fro from the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, as blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you have incited me against him, to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin! Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die! It's a nice wife. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good, good from the hand of God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then we see, beginning of verse 11, and this goes on for chapters now, his three, quote-unquote, friends coming to visit him. And we see that after a period of time, his friends begin to do what? Accuse him of wrongdoing. Not just blame him for his afflictions, but, but judge him. Accuse him of sin, and that God is judging him for his sin. Job clearly was a man who was well acquainted at this moment with instant grief. For years he had been spared of it. He was the greatest of all men. Had the most in, in, in property, 
had a large family, uh, had a good life. But in a moment, in an instant, that life transformed to utter pain. Some of you have experienced great loss, whether financially, whether physically. It may have been a child. It may have been a loved one. It may have been a spouse. It may have been a grandparent or a parent. It may have been a business. It may have been your house. It may have been your car. But I don't think any of us could say that we had a day like Job had. When he lost everything financially and then lost everything relationally. What was your response when that tragedy came? Job's response was to glorify God, was to worship Him. Because Job understood two things about God that we see in this passage that I think we need to be reminded of in the midst of afflictions in the midst of adversity. And the first of that is that in Job's affliction we see the sovereignty of God. And Job understood the sovereignty of God. That there is nothing there is nothing that can occur in this world without God allowing it to occur. It doesn't necessarily mean that God causes everything, but God what? Allows it. He permits it. In chapter 1, we saw there was a day when Satan came before the throne of God. That's mind-boggling enough as it is. But God uses his servant Job, his child, if you would. Put it in your perspective, you're Job. And God uses you and says, have you seen my servant? And I'll pick on me, not that I feel like I'm anywhere close to being the righteousness that Job exhibited. But have you considered my, my, my servant Bob? Bob. There is none like him on the earth, righteous and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Satan says what? Let me at him, God! Let me at him! And I'm sitting there, if I, if I you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I kind of know this is going on, and I'm saying what then? No, 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 God, no, 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 no. Job didn't have that privilege, right? I mean, he, he didn't have that. But outside of his understanding, that spiritual realm, the spiritual war that we talk about all the time, it's there, folks. It's happening. There is a spiritual war that's going on. Satan said, it's only because you got a hedge bottom. You lower the hedge. Let me at him. And then we'll see how righteous this guy really is. God could have said what? No. No. You can't touch him. He's mine. But God permitted him, Satan, to have his way with Job. Limited, but you can't touch him. 
but you can touch everything he has. And in chapter 2, we see that the war intensifies, and he allows Satan to touch him, just not kill him. God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. How does that make you feel? Does that give you a little discomfort that maybe um, there was pain and anguish and God allowed it? A lot of times we like to say that Satan caused it, and he did. But we don't want to recognize the fact that what? God allowed it. And, and we have all these struggles in our world today, and we have the, the books that are being written, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, that's a misnomer to begin with, because we're assuming what? We're good people. Um, and, and therefore, we don't deserve anything bad to happen to us anyway. And so we need to really recheck that. That's for a different message um, about our goodness, um, or honestly, the lack thereof of it. But we see God's sovereignty. God, God was sovereign over all things, and Satan couldn't do anything apart from God's sovereignty. But in it as well, God is what? God's faithful. He cares for you. And honestly, though it doesn't look like it, he cares for, for Job. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your what? Care upon, you, care upon him, because he cares for you. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. Just as God's going to take care of the sparrows, he's going to even more so take care of you. So in God's faithfulness, in his, in, in his, his chesed for us, we see, first of all, that my afflictions will never be beyond what he knows that I can withstand. Now, there's one thing coming from the other side of looking at the book of Job and his afflictions is, God thought a whole lot of Job. God thought a whole lot of Job. Because God used him. Just like I believe God uses us, Satan is the accuser of the what? The brethren. There are accusations going on all the time. I don't know how it goes, but clearly he's the, accus he's the accuser of Job at this moment, isn't he? And God says, have you seen Job? Man, he, that guy has got it together like nobody else has got it together. And Satan says, man, let me at him. He says, go ahead. Go ahead. You can touch him. But you, you can't touch him. You can touch everything he has, but you can't touch him. What does God know? Job could handle that affliction. Job could handle that periosmos, that troublesome situation, which we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There is no temptation, no periosmos, no periosmoi, no troublesome situations that overtake you, but such are common to man. But God is faithful in that he will not allow you to be periosmos. He will not allow you to be troubled, tried, tempted, beyond what you're able to bear. But will, with the periosmos, with that troublesome situation, also make a way to escape. What's God saying? You can handle it. And if you don't think you can, I'm going to give you the hyperspace button. You older folks understand that one, with you know, playing asteroids, you know, and, and your, your little bitty triangle type 
ship and, and your little dots were going out and shooting the asteroids and the asteroids were splitting apart and everything. But as you were playing the game, more and more asteroids came in and, and they're getting closer and closer to you and you couldn't spin the thing fast enough and all of a sudden you're about ready to get wrecked and you hit the hyperspace button. What did the hyperspace button do for you? It got you out of there and it brought you someplace else on the screen. It got you out of danger. Literally, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about a jumping point. He gives you a jumping place, is the idea. If you don't feel like you can stand the fire, he gives you a way to what? Jump out of it. But the confidence side of this is, if God allows you to have a trial, a temptation, a troublesome situation in your life, he's allowed it into your life because he knows you can handle it. He's not betting on it. He's not guessing at it. He knows you can handle it. The difference is what? Whether you have confidence in him to handle it. And so in Philippians chapter 2, we're told that um, he puts in us the will to, um, to do... Um, I'm messing it up now. More of my brethren... Say it again, Daniel. The will and to do of his good pleasure. He places within us the ability to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so God knows you can handle it because he's working in you. If you are his child, now understand that, if you're his child, if you're his child, you're under his dominion, you're under his protective care. And if that comes into your life, it's because he knows that you can glorify him through it. And so that periosmos, that troublesome situation, is the same word that we see in James chapter 1, translated, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith, the periosmos of your faith, worketh patience and so on and so forth. But then later on, in verse 12, 13, 14, it says then that, that um, when a man is tempted, let him not say that he is tempted of God. Guess what word that word tempted is? Periosmos again. It's trial... And temptation is the same word in the Greek. It's a two-sided coin. If, if, if I held up a quarter between Steve and Marcia here, and I said, describe this coin to me, Steve may say, well, there's an eagle on it. And Marcia would say, oh, no, there's a man's face on it. And they could fight to their blue and face about it, but who's right and who's wrong? They're both right. It just depends on which side of the coin they were looking at. Well, periosmos is the same kind of concept. When it comes into your life, it comes into your life as a troublesome situation. How you respond to it determines whether it was heads or tails. If it comes into your life and you fall, it just shows that it, to you, to you, it was a temptation and it revealed sin in you. If you do what God expects that you can do and stand to it, it is a matter of strengthening your faith and it reveals Christ in you. Does that make sense? For the rest of the world. How you respond to it. And Job, very clearly, had options of how he responded to the afflictions that God allowed into his life. We'll look at his response in just a moment, but for this side we're looking at God. So God is sovereign, God is faithful, and that he will not allow my afflictions to be beyond what he knows I can withstand. And secondly, I know from the word of God that my afflictions will always be for my benefit. 
ouch, that's a really hard one for me to swallow. And honestly, I'm standing up here and preaching, okay? But I guarantee you that in my life, I struggle with that, just as you do. But I know from the Word of God that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestine, that they be conformed to the image of His Son. And so I know, I know, I may not feel all the time, but I know that when God allows a troublesome situation in my life, that ultimately it is for my, my good. For my good. Because all things work together for good. Now, I may not get it. I may not understand it. I may never understand it on the earth. It may not be till I get the glory that I find out what the purpose was. And you know what? I may not find in glory either. I won't care. That's exactly right. But if you're a mom or you're a dad, you'll get it. There are times when you tell your son or daughter, no. And they don't get it. They think you're limiting them. They think you're abusing them. They think you're hindering them. They think that you're ruining all the pleasures of the earth that there ever could be in this one very moment. But you know that you're bringing this troublesome situation into their life (laughs) for their good. Now, that was just simply telling them a no. Now, it's really rotten when you tell them they've got to clean the bathroom. And when they didn't do it right, take them back in and do it again. You are really rude. How could you do that to your son or your daughter, whom you love? Shouldn't they have the pleasure of playing Wii all day? Yes, the kids, are, the kids are all saying yes. The parents are saying no, you don't get it. One day you're going to be on your own and you need to know how to do these things or people don't want to visit your house, I promise you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for your betterment. See, we get it in a, in a lower level. But in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that God is my father and that he loves me like a father. And so when he allows that troublesome situation in my life. He's done it for a purpose. And you know what? We're not really going to talk about it a whole lot here because it's outside the scope of what we're trying to get to. And, and I've got so much, and I, I, just, I, I know I'm going to keep you long, and I'm sorry about that. But I'm, so I'm, I'm confessing before it happens, okay? Um, and, and that is that, you know, we're going to talk about the faith of Job in a moment, okay? Did this, though, reveal anything about Job that Job needed to learn? Yes, it did. In the end, Job finally, the, 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 the little bit of leaven that's still there, that little bit of um, dross that's kind of hanging out there, and, and God is putting him through this, this burner and bringing the dross up to be, so he can be refined, kind of boils out, and he says, I want to see God face to face because I know that I'm righteous. And I want to be able to declare myself. And, and in the end of the book of Job, what do we see? We see God coming down and says, okay, big guy, here you are. You got your wish face to face. You ready? Let's do it. And Job says what? <gasps> I can't believe I opened my mouth. I'm undone. I'm, I'm, I, no, no, I spoke. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And God says, uh-uh. You already opened it up, big guy. It's time for us to talk. You're so wise. You're so big. You're wise in your own eyes now. Come on, man. Where do I store the ice? Where's the rain come from? Do you know how things happen? 
Why, do you know, how do the rock badgers get their food? What about Leviathan? Can you control Leviathan? What, what about Behemoth? Come on, man, you're so big. You're so, you, you, you got it all together. You, you, you must, be the, must have been there at the time of creation. You know how it all happened. Help me out here. And Job says, oh, man, I just, oh. I spoke rashly. And yet, in the end, God speaks to the friends and says, you guys need to confess to Job and ask Job to, to pray for you so that I'll, I'll forgive you. Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, God runs his child through the ringer, exposes the dross in him, deals with him publicly in front of these other guys, and then turns around to the public, to the world, quote-unquote if you would, and says what? He's still more righteous than you are. <laughs> you guys better ask him to pray for you. That's a pretty cool thing. And so, we see that, that sovereignty and faithfulness of God in the afflictions of Job, but even more so, consider the faith of Job in all this. And this is my challenge in the, in the practical side to, to you all, but to me. I mean, I, I'm no different. You know, there's no temptations overtaken me, such as coming to man. So it's, it's, it's all to, to each of us. Chapter 1, we read it. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped God. He understood that God was sovereign. He understood that ultimately the afflictions that were occurring to him were from the hand of God. Not caused, not you know, volitional that way, but yet still volitional in that God said to Satan, you can go ahead and do it. And he says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Yahweh's given all this stuff to me. I don't have anything that I didn't get from him. So everything I have, the kids are from him, the, the, the sheep are from him, the cattle's from him, the camels are from him, the servants are from him, my house is from him, the wife, I'm not sure where she's from, but no, the, the wife, the, my wife is from him. Everything is from him. The Lord is given, and what? The Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know none of you want to pray through James chapter 1, and none of you want to know the experiences of Job. And yet, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, everything that was about me is meaningless for this one thing, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable even unto death. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I not, count not myself to have already apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to have a warped mentality and really looking forward to praying for sufferings in your life. But the fact is they're going to come. They're going to come. How are you going to approach them? Are you going to approach them with the faith of Job, realizing the sovereignty of God, realizing, indeed, again, as he says in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, when he speaks to his wife, he says, You speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? It's going to come. 
And when we speak otherwise, we speak as Job said to his wife, you're speaking as one of this foolish woman. Now, I understand, I heard this from a woman um, about two years ago, and I, I really appreciated it. She says, Job's wife gets a bad rap. You know, the joke about, you know, and so he took, God took away everything else. Why didn't he take his wife away too? <laughs> and uh, anyways, but that's talking like a man, you know. But her comment was that, that the wife has her life, if she's, if she's really biblical, her life is wrapped up in her husband. And she cares about her husband. And Job's wife had to, not, she had to go through all the same pain that Job did. I mean, she lost everything. And not only did she lose everything, but think about it, when Satan is given the privilege to touch Job, who doesn't he touch? Job's wife. And so now she has to be on the outside watching her husband suffer. Boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He was one of the, not one of the, he was the most respected man on the planet. In a short period, he went to poverty and then to total great discomfort, sitting in an ash heap, scraping himself with a potsherd. And so she says, curse God and die. You're still holding on to your integrity. Curse God and die. Again, an expression that we might have out of great despair. And so we pick on her. But honestly, she probably is there for a reason, and that is to express truthfully what many of us feel and probably verbalize. Sometimes so others can hear sometimes that what others don't hear. You know, you put on the game face when you see people. You know, how you doing? Great. God's God. You know, he's awesome. And then we go home and we do what? <laughs> you know, and, and struggle and fist and fight and, you know. But then we come back the next time. God's good all the time. You know. But we're told a Job in the midst of all that understood God's faithfulness. And then, in chapter 19, where we want to transition to. Turn with me there. Let's look at this in context. In Job 19. A phenomenal statement. Now, understand context again. He's, Job is struggling, and, and he's wanting to demand his case before God. Does anybody know the, the circa... The time frame of the book of Job. Anybody know when Job lived? Say again. Right after creation, a little bit more defined. Right between Noah and Abraham. Job is is considered to be the earliest recorded writing. That this is the earliest um, writing that we have of man. Period. Okay. This is a phenomenal statement, then, that we're about to read. That in the midst of his anguish, Job is still speaking theology in what he really believes. Verse 23, start there. Make sure I'm there. 
No, sorry, verse 21, I'm sorry. It says, have pity on me, have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Guess what? They were. <clears throat> Be careful what you say, okay? Oh, that my words were written and that they were inscribed in a book. They are. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes, my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a powerful statement. Jesus hasn't been on the earth yet. Abraham hasn't received the covenant yet. I mean, we're talking right after Noah. And in Job, we get a glimpse of what God has already revealed about his plan of coming to the earth and redeeming us because we couldn't do it ourselves. Because of our sin, what we looked at last week, because of the fall of man, because of our rebellion, because of our inability to pay for our own sins, that he who is perfect, God alone, was going to come to the earth, was going to pay the penalty of our sins, he was going to buy us back. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Looking forward to Messiah, to the Christ, coming, the anointed one who was going to come and he was going to be the redeemer of his flesh. What does it mean first of all, as a redeemer? Well, the Hebrew word here is ga'el. Ga'el. And ga'el, translated, most of the times is translated as redeemer. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that to redeem means to buy something back. And so in Leviticus 25 and 27, you can go later and check me out. We don't really have time to do all this, but it's there for you to go check it out. The chapters almost entirely are are all about redemption. And in chapter 25, we read about buying back property that was sold and buying back people that was sold and buying back property that was sold. And so the opportunity that God placed within Israel that if they sold something, that their kinsman redeemer, their in, in the word that kinsman redeemer, we see it as two words, but it's really just the one word, Gael. And that means that there was somebody in their, their family line the next of kin, who could come in, purchase it back, buy it back, so it was theirs again. Okay, And so in chapter 27, again, we see the same concept about that, and talking about the year of Jubilee, and, and how when you, you, um, you sold something, I'm sorry, that's 25 and 27, something that was dedicated to the Lord, how you could buy it back, and stuff like that. Okay, So we know it means to buy something back, and so therefore a redeemer, a Gael, is one who buys something back. Now, that sounds pretty simple. He's one who buys something back. And so Job says, I know that my purchaser, the one who's buying me back, I'm going to see him face to face. That he is going to stand on the earth. When is this going to occur, did Job say? After his flesh is destroyed. But how is he going to see him? In his flesh! Do you get it? 
What do you think Job... Let's bring in New Testament theology here for a moment. Give me one word, beginning with an R and ending with an E. What do you think Job's talking about? The rapture. Job believed in the resurrection from the dead. He believed in the rapture. Isn't that something? I mean, right after Noah, he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. In one little concise statement, God's going to come to the earth, he's going to buy me back, and one day I'm going to be resurrected, my body's going to be decayed, my body's going to be destroyed. That's what he's talking about, body being destroyed. He understands that, that one day he's going to die, quote-unquote. His body's going to be placed in the earth, and it's going to be what? Decayed. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. It's going to be eaten up with worms. And yet, the Redeemer is going to come to the earth. And when that happens, he's going to be given a new body. Kind of sounds like Paul wrote this book, doesn't it? And, he, and, and he's going to be raised up, and he's going to see him face to face with a new body. That's pretty cool stuff. So the illustrations that we have in the Bible are the redemption of Israel. This is a physical thing that goes on, but God says that he redeemed Israel. When did he redeem Israel? From the land of Egypt. From the land of Egypt. And he talks about the redemption of Israel and and how he bought her from, from the turmoil that she was in. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck. Slavery. O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. And you shall be redeemed, how? Without money. Isn't that pretty cool? God talks about the redemption of Israel being redemption that is, occurs without money. That he's going to buy Israel back, but he's going to buy her back without money. Your yoke of bondage, the chain that's about your neck, is going to be broken but it's not going to be you standing on the slave, slave block and me buying you with money. You have other passages you can look at. Secondly, we see the redemption of Ruth. The redemption of Ruth. A great, awesome story. I challenge you to read it at some point. Where we see um, Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, the, the, the purchaser of, of Ruth. And Ruth is a Moabitess who returns back to to Bethlehem, the the city of bread, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi lost her her husband and her two sons in Moab when they had had fled because of the famine. And and, and they all die in in Moab. And and she tries to get her two daughter-in-laws to go back. And um, the one daughter-in-law goes back, but, but Ruth says, no, no, no. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Pretty cool statement. And she goes back with Naomi as a dog. Now, I don't mean that as being rude, but to the Jews, a Moabitess was a dog. I mean, it was just, I mean, they were not a people. 
just they weren't anything. And so, and so Ruth willingly serves Naomi, and she goes into the field of Boaz and, and gleans from the harvest. You know, they're, 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 they're reaping everything, and she's just going and picking up the little morsels of grain, that, a wheat that she can find, the kernels that, that she can feed both her and Naomi. Boaz finds out about it and is filled with amazement and wonder at her and tells his, his servants to do what? Just drop some. You know, accidentally on purpose, you know, just kind of drop some of those sheaves. You know, give, let, her, let, her, let her glean some more. In other words, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, embarrass her. Let her do her work. You know, if, if somebody wants to eat, they need to what? They need to work. Let her work. But make sure she gets enough to, to take care of, of her and Naomi. And Naomi says, man, this is so awesome, Ruth. I cannot believe what God has done. God is so faithful. He is so sovereign. The themes always run here, right? And, and, and that he has sent you to the field of our kinsman redeemer, our redeemer, our Gael. And here's what you need to do. You need to go tonight. You need to go to the threshing floor and you need to, to, to slide in at, at, at Boaz's feet and see if he'll, he'll do what is required of him in the law as the Gael, as the Redeemer. And so she goes and Boaz says, man, you have shown even more kindness to me now because he's an old man. You should go out and, and get a young guy, young guy and he says, man, you've shown me greater, greater kindness. I mean, to, to come in and to, to do me this honor. He says, but here's the deal. There is, a, there is a kinsman closer than I am to Naomi, and we have to give him the, the right to, to perform his, his job as the Gael. And so they go to the city. He goes to the city, um, and, and he waits for this Gael to come, this, this man who's closer. And, and the, the Gael shows up, and he says, Hey, come here, big guy. And he, and he comes over, and he says, Listen, um, I don't know if you realize this, but Naomi you know, came back from Moab, and you know, Elimelech's gone. Sons are gone, you know, Malon and Kilion, they're dead, you know. And, and so her land is up to be sold. So you are the, the Gael, you're the, the Redeemer. You have the privilege of, of purchasing that land, of, of, of buying it back. And um, you want it? And he says, What? Yes, yes, yes. I'll take it. Ah, diggity dog, diggity. My property now expanded. He says, Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Detail, minor detail. I forgot to throw in a detail. Um, when, when, when you do that, you get Naomi in the deal, too. And he's thinking, okay, I, I probably can still handle that. Naomi's what? She's past childbearing age. It's no big deal. That doesn't, doesn't affect me at all. I'll just take care of the woman for a few years. She'll keel off, and no big deal. He said, oh, wait, one, one other detail. Uh, Ruth the Moabitess, uh, she came back with Naomi. Um, she's daughter-in-law still. She didn't stay in Moabite, Moab. She came. So you get her, too. She's part of the deal. Now all of a sudden, Gael says what? No, can't do it. Why can't you do it? Not just his reputation, but see, what would happen is when he had a child through Ruth, then I don't remember it was Malon or Kilion, who she was the, the wife of, um, one of the two sons, they actually then would become the heir of the property and not his own son. And so he says, nope, can't do that. Might jeopardize my, my inheritance. And so Boaz says, ching, ching. You know, it's happened the way I wanted it to. And he says, then 
I'm willing to do that. I, I want to be the Gael. I want to be the one who buys back, not just the property, but buys back Naomi and Ruth. This is an awesome picture. Because Naomi is who? Is Israel. Who's Ruth? She's the Gentiles. And Boaz is the picture of Jesus. Now, do you know what's neat about Boaz? He's in the line of David. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Okay, and so he and Ruth have a child whose name is Obed, and Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. That's coming this way. Anybody know anything about Boaz going the other way? He was the son of Salmon and Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Now, isn't that pretty cool? Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, not only of only Israel, but of Israel and non-Israel, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. He is the purchaser of us all. And so what's the implication? Our redemption by Christ. Our redemption by Christ. The cost clearly was the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, you can read these passages. I don't have time. I, <clears throat> I'd love to spend so much time on this. But we're told that we're, we were purchased, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus came and he died. He died. He died a horrific death because he loved you, because he loved me. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so the redemption was purchased with the blood of Christ. And in Romans chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, we're told that Jesus Christ is not the propitiation for our sins only, but he's also for the sins of the whole world. And so the scope, this is so important. I mean, the scope of Christ's redemption was just not for a few. It was for everyone. We, the whole world is on that slave block, if you would. And Jesus says what? I'll buy the lot. I'll make the payment that every single one of those slaves who chooses to be emancipated can be emancipated. This is so, in the days of the United States, when the Emancipation Proclamation came, do you know what? There were still slaves who chose not to be free. The purchase price was made, if you would. They were all given freedom. Some took it and relished in it. Some didn't. Right now, everybody in this world has their sins paid for. It's a done deal. They just have to what? Accept it. They have to accept the redemption that has already been purchased for them. Whenever you get coupons, we love coupons. The coupon has a redemption price on it, doesn't it? I mean, you take it in, and for this little piece of paper that's not worth anything, you get a dollar for it. Some of it, 50% off. I mean, you might get 100 bucks for that little bitty piece of paper because you took it into the store. You might get something for free because you took that little bitty piece of paper. And so, in a sense, that little bitty piece of paper equated to whatever that thing was you got for free. 
But on the bottom of all those little bitty pieces of paper, by law, they have to state something on it. What do they state on it? No? No, that's not true. Not the expiration date. There you go. Say it, say it Roddy. The, the actual worth of the coupon. It's worth one-twentieth of a cent. And literally, if you take 20 of those coupons and you send them to the, back to the company, they will send you one penny. Because the actual worth of that coupon is worth one-twentieth of a cent. You read it. Most, most coupons, you, you get those little grocery coupons and stuff like that, on the very bottom, in the fine print, it's going to tell you that it's worth one-tenth of a cent, one-twentieth of a cent, whatever it is. And theoretically, if you got enough of those together, you could be a rich person. Anyways, you wouldn't. I mean, think, think of how much, how much you get out. But what's the point? If you are a coupon, and everybody in the world is a coupon, get it? It's already been given the value, and it's already been paid for. All you have to do is take the coupon in and have it redeemed. It's there. I can't think of any company, quote-unquote, any person who's more honorable to honor the redemptive price than God. And so the result, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What's the result of our redemption by Christ? Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He owns you. He owns you. And so in Romans 6, we're told, that do you not know that to whom you offer yourself as a slave to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading unto death or obedience leading unto righteousness? You are the owner property of God. And it is, it is considered as an obligation for you then, it makes sense, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, to serve the living God. Who are you serving? But secondly, implication is our worship. Our worship. And as we, we read Revelation 4 this morning, turn with me to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, the continuing the, the, the theme of this worship in heaven, where they, they worship the Creator for who He is and what He has done. And then the, the, the scroll is, is there, and no one's found worthy to open the scroll. And then the Lamb proceeds from the throne, and He is found worthy. Of it, and and then there's the song of praise that 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 goes up. Um, that says, beginning of verse eight. Now, when he had taken the scroll, and the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood." out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever. Just as Job fell on his face and worshipped God, the Lord gives, the Lord gives, taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So in heaven, the same reaction and response is going to come to our Redeemer. Job understood who God was. His theology affected his life. He understood that he had nothing on his own, that everything he had belonged to God, and God had every right to take it from him. And that one day, he was going to be in the presence of God to be able to worship him face to face. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that before this day is out, you could be in the presence of God? Not just like I said in the beginning, wouldn't it be really cool, we were singing the Revelation song, if before we got to open up our mouth and sing that Revelation song, we were singing it? I mean, wouldn't that be really cool? I mean, or maybe we're singing it, and we think we're singing it, and all of a sudden, before we're done singing it, we're singing it. If we really believed it, if we really, really, I mean, get it? If we really believed it, wouldn't it really change our life? Wouldn't it really affect how we saw afflictions, troublesome situations, as minor bumps in the road? Naked I came into the world. Apart from somebody putting clothes on me before they put me in a casket or into the, the, the burner or whatever, I'm going to go naked out. The whole cliche, right? You've never seen a U-Haul following the hearse. In the end, the only thing that matters is you and God in your relationship. Do you get it? And Job got it. Job understood it. Now, how did the book of Job end? How does the book of Job end? Does anybody know? His riches not only were restored, but they were multiplied. He was given more children. He was given more riches. And his, and his greatness exceeded his greatness before. Now, I'm not promising you health and wealth, <laughs> you know, that go through the afflictions and God will bless you and wow, you know. But God is what? Able, if he chooses to, to do that. Have you been redeemed? You have been. It's just, have you actualized it in your life? Are you looking forward to seeing God face to face? Now, that's a big question. I mean, are you looking forward to it? If there's unconfessed sin in you, you probably, the answer is probably no. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Perfect love casts out all fear. How does that affect your view on affliction and tribulation today? And then finally, how often do you consider what God has done 
for you. How worship-filled is your life? Let's pray. Father, I know that my Redeemer lives. You are He. You are my Gael. It is mind-boggling to me. And I know that I don't have the faith of Job, at least in this juncture of my life that I see. I would not consider myself to be the righteous and upright man that he was, in your estimation. And yet, Lord, I know that you consider each one of us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that he who knew no sin became sin, that I might receive the righteousness of Christ. And that according to my own righteousness, I am but a filthy rag. But according to that which comes from Christ, I am clean and I am pure. And I glorify you for that. That you loved me, you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son to redeem me, to buy me back. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of sonship. Lord, I pray that you would help us to really bask in your redemption, to not take it for granted, but to glory in it, not to our own glory, but to yours, such that our light would shine and the world would see a difference and would want what you have to offer. For we ask this not according to our own will, according to our own flesh, but according to that which you have placed within us. In the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen.